That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Would you be seated? Keep that Bible open as we pray together. Holy Spirit, we ask in the name of Jesus that you would be in this place. Uh, Father, I pray that you would be tilling the hard soil of our hearts. And Lord, I pray that the implanted seed of your word would grow deep and we would receive it with meekness and that we would hear the very voice of Jesus speaking to us through your word. To the glory of the Father, we pray. Amen. So how many groups of people do you see when you look in the world? How many groups of people could you categorize people as being, you know, a part of? You know, I know many of us believe that we live in a pretty polarized time, right? There is political group A and there's political group B, and there are the good people and then there are the bad people, right? Uh, yesterday, I was at the gas station in Jacksonville, and a couple guys behind me in line were buying beverages of various kinds, and then they proceeded to pontificate about their political views, and they didn't designate the world between political party A or B or the good people or the bad people. They divvied up the world between the haves and the have-nots. That was their conception of the world. I mean, how easy is it for us to fall in line and make that the subtext of a lot of our conversations? Where do you fall on the spectrum between the good guys and the bad guys? But when Jesus looked at people, did he put them into groups? We may want to say, well, no, Jesus wouldn't do that because Jesus is sort of like an early postmodern thinker that would think kind of like us. But if you look at the parable of the sower, friends, it's fascinating because Jesus designates not two groups of people, the good and the bad or the haves or the have-nots or whatever. He actually designates four groups of people. Did you catch what those were? The first group of people Jesus designates are people who have hard hearts. They're like the clay ground on a hiking trail. Nothing's getting in and nothing's getting out. They have hard hearts. The second group of people that Jesus designates were like super excited about Jesus. They even responded to the gospel message with joy and excitement, and they loved it. But then persecution and testing came, and they fell away. And then, you know, the third group of people Jesus talks about are the coulda, woulda, shoulda disciples of Jesus. Maybe they were great soil, but something else grew underneath the ground, another set of roots, if you will. And those roots choked out any possibility of faith. And then the last group of people Jesus describes, of course, are those who receive the implanted word. And the roots of the gospel grow deep. And those people become who they were always meant to be. People who produce not just one time over, but a hundredfold, or 60, or 30. You know, uh, years ago, um, 
my lovely wife, Caroline, uh, when we were married, she went uh, to the University of Alabama, Huntsville, and she took a class in German. Remember how you have to take like core classes in college? Well, she had to take a language course, so she took German because she grew up in Germany. And uh, the German professor uh, had a great saying, and if you know anything about uh, Germany, this will maybe resonate with you. And the German professor said, America does not produce good bread. There's no good bread in America because in his mind, what's the best kind of bread, you think? Well, bread of life would be a better answer than what he's about to give, but he said the best kind of bread was German bread, brotchen, you know, brot, you know, in German. And you know what he said? The reason German bread is better than all theirs, you know what he said? Is because it's hard on the outside, but on the inside, it's really gooey. You know, think of like a baguette, you know, a baguette, right? It's hard on the outside, but real gooey. And he said the best thing about German bread is when you bite into it, it bites back. And that's how you know you've got good bread, right? Because the outside's really hard, right? And have you ever eaten a really crusty piece of bread? I got here, right? It messes up the roof of your mouth, right? And that's when you know you got the good stuff because it's biting you back. So I guess I share that, friends, because I need you to realize that as you think about these four groups of people that I'm not designating you as a part of, but Jesus is, This living bread, the bread of life, Jesus, the manna from heaven, it's biting back. We may try to understand these parables, we may try to read them, but at the same time, they're reading us. You know, there's a wonderful animated movie that came out a few years ago. Uh, Some of you have seen it, it's called Inside Out. It's one of my favorite uh, Pixar movies, and what's great about it is it's about a little girl, and she's 12, and she moves away from home. And inside of her, the characters are not, you know, her thoughts. It's actually like four or five core emotions. Things like anger is a core character, but fear is also another core character. And the really powerful thing is, uh, as much as the movie is about that little girl, it's not really about that little girl as she goes through these key milestones of life and heartache and the rejection of friends. You know, the amazing thing about the movie Inside Out is who's the main character of the film? You are. You are. Because as she has her first heartbreak, you recall your own first heartbreak. When she goes through her rejection and the emotions are moving inside her, you realize those are your emotions. It's an amazing turn. It's an it's a, uh, artistic mirror helping you see not just the story, but how you fit into that story. Friends, these parables work the same way. We think we come and we can assess Jesus from a distance, but actually he's assessing us and saying, well, which of the four soils are you? So, you know, why does Jesus talk this way? You know, why does Jesus use this analogy of sort of four soils? Or or more, I mean, honestly, more profoundly, why does Jesus even bother speaking in a parable to begin with? Why does he use this sort of earthly story with a heavenly meaning? Well, if you can, I mean, it's it's hard to imagine, but um, if you can, this is a beautiful picture of Van Gogh. Uh, by Van Gogh, and it's the sowers from the late 1800s. If you were here last week, you'll know that we talked a lot about Van Gogh and the religious imagery in his paintings. Uh, This is, I think, inspired by the very passage that you and I are reading, because some of the seed falls where? Along the path. And uh, actually, you know what? Um, If you noticed in Matthew 13, what's Jesus doing as he's giving us these stories? Did you catch it? It says everybody came to Jesus that same day when Jesus was facing a lot of opposition, and everyone came and stood around him, and like a good Jewish rabbi, Jesus did what? Did you catch it? He did this. 
You see it? That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him. So he got into a boat and he sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. Now, I'm not going to make you stand, but you can imagine what it would be like standing, listening to Jesus speak. And uh, you can go online, Google something called the Cove of Parables. The Cove of Parables. Some of you may have even been there in Israel. Uh, it's a spot on the sea, and it was like a horseshoe shape. And so Jesus would sit, he would sit down in the water at the top of the horseshoe, and he could look up and talk to um, hundreds, thousands of people. It's a pretty fascinating place. Uh, natural acoustics uh, work beautifully in the Cove of Parables. And Jesus spoke to thousands of people, but he sat down to do it because he was a good rabbi. Rabbis would sit down to teach, stand to preach. And so what I want you to do is ask yourself, why does Jesus talk like this? Jesus turned the world not upside down. He put the world to rights, turned it right side up. But the way he did it was he told stories. So what I want you to do is I want you to try to, you know, use your mind's eye and imagine you are standing as Jesus sat down to tell this story. And instead of, you know, reading it, I want you to just look at this painting by Van Gogh as you hear it. Because, you know, because people wouldn't have read this parable, right? Because Jesus was speaking it. They weren't reading it. They were listening. So with that in mind, hear this parable again. Look at the painting. A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Friends, you know, the reason I think Jesus spoke in parables, these sort of earthly stories with heavenly meanings, is uh, you've got to understand by Matthew 13, when it says in verse 1, that same day, what it's referring to is earlier in the day in Matthew chapter 12, in the chapter right before it, Jesus is facing all kinds of opposition. Uh, Matthew 12, verse 14, it says, But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how they could destroy him. You see, what's happening in Jesus' life is he's going around, he's proclaiming this thing called the kingdom of God, this new way of living that's accessible by faith, that defines you not by your political allegiance or your political party or your socioeconomic status or your skin color, but by allegiance to a king of a kingdom that will never end. He's the king of kings, and all their kingdoms will fall, and his will remain standing. Jesus is proclaiming this thing called the kingdom of God, and people can't stand his message about the kingdom of God because it threatens the kingdom of what? The kingdom of me. The kingdom that I want to build around myself. And so as Jesus is teaching this, he's facing opposition. Uh, Jesus has just given the Sermon on the Mount. He's been proclaiming this kingdom, but he's finding more and more resistance from people. And then if you can believe it, in Matthew chapter 12, right before chapter 13, if you were to look at Matthew 12, 46 through 50, you know who else starts to oppose Jesus? is actually his mother and his relatives. They show up and they're like, hey, uh, we need to come talk to you, Jesus. Knock it off. You're embarrassing the family. Come on. Look at verse 46. While he stood speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brother stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Jesus said, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. 
For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So Jesus is facing opposition from without and from within. And then look at verse 13, verse 1. That same day. This is the first chapter in Matthew where Jesus shifts to parables. Chapters 1 through 12, he's been teaching kind of didactically, about the kingdom of God, and now he's facing all manner of opposition, and they have started the murderous plot that they will begin until they succeed, and even his family doesn't understand him. And so what Jesus does is he changes his pedagogical style, his teaching style, and he shifts, and he goes to these earthly stories. So why is it that Jesus does this? I mean, why does he go to these sort of earthly stories? Um, You know, there's a a fascinating book called The Courage to Teach by a guy named Parker Palmer. Anybody read The Courage to Teach? Uh, Sold a couple hundred thousand copies. And in this book, I think Parker Palmer gets at why Jesus uses parables. Um, I love this quote. Parker Palmer says, uh, again, remember, this is a mirror to your soul. Remember? This is reading you. This is the bread biting back. It says, the soul is like a wild animal, tough, resilient, and yet shy. When we go crashing through the woods, shouting for it to come out so we can help it, the soul will stay in hiding. You know, what I love so much about that quote is it it just resonates with so much truth to me. I mean, there is a sense that people are tough and they are resilient and they spend a lifetime facing adversity and they go through long disappointments, they go through bad uh, health diagnoses, they go through deaths in their family, and they are tough, and they are resilient. And yet there's a sense that if somebody knocks too directly on the front door of our heart, or they speak too much on the nose, we do what? We get shy. We don't want to talk. We clam up. You know, um, I, th- I got to make a confession. I think too much in my life about fishing. I think about it a lot, Okay at an unhealthy, well, it's not, I don't know if I want to say that. It may be unhealthy, but probably not, because fishing is awesome, and Jesus called fishermen, and I believe that. Amen. Thank you for the amen. But consider this for just a moment. The way that God has created this world, he speaks through creation, and there are such creatures like the steelhead that can leave the rogue river swim all the length of the road. Could you imagine swimming the length of the Rogue River? I mean, you can't, you and I, we can't even make it across the pool, right? Swimming down the Rogue River and then swimming up the ocean to Alaska and then swimming back up the Rogue to spawn and then doing that three times over the course of the life of a steelhead potentially. I mean, that is a tough and a resilient fish that literally lives its entire life facing against the current. And yet, as soon as that steelhead hears boots on the rocks in the water, it's shy. It's shy. Friends, your soul is the same way. Where you're tough, you are resilient, and yet you're shy. So what does Jesus do? He changes his teaching style. He goes through not the front door, but the back door. And he says, let me tell you a story about a sower. Let me tell you a story about a farmer. You don't have to care about it. If you don't, don't worry. If there's some seeds sprinkled on your head, somebody will deal with those. They'll take it out of your hair. You don't have to worry about it. But if you care, maybe you'll listen. You see, Jesus comes knocking on the back door of our soul, I think because he has a message to share. But what is it 
that is the message of Jesus. Well, if you were here last week, you may remember that what I suggested to you was that the core content of what Jesus Christ came to talk about was this thing that he kept calling the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. Find me a parable, and I'm willing to bet that most of the parables that you find, Jesus will say, for the kingdom of God is like this. In fact, the parable that you and I just heard is actually a message about the kingdom. Look at Matthew chapter 13, verse 18. Hear then the parable of the sower, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom. This parable is about this thing called the kingdom of God. Well, what in the world is the kingdom of God? What is Jesus' favorite teaching uh, passage or, or concept? Well, it's this thing called the kingdom. And last week I suggested to you there's three things that you can remember. This will help you for the rest of your life. The kingdom is three things. It is a king, it is a people, and it is a place. What is the kingdom of God? Number one, a kingdom needs a king. It needs somebody in charge. And Jesus Christ has the audacity to say that he is the king to end all kings. He is the ruler to end all rulers, and his kingdom shall never end. He is the ruler of not just our hearts, but all of creation. And one day he will return and make all things new, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. This is the great promise of the kingdom of God. But the amazing thing is, is that Jesus is inviting all manner of people to not find their primary allegiance in their, you know, political party team A or political party team B or find their primary identity in their definition of the good life or in their wealth or their socioeconomic status or even their skin color. What Jesus has the audacity to say is the number one thing that gives you identity is not your gender or your race or your wealth. It's the identity of a member of the kingdom of God that you are beloved in Jesus Christ, and you have a citizenship that will never end by faith in Jesus. And that is for all manner of people. And how beautiful of a Sunday to remember the multinational nature of the kingdom of God. I heard y'all singing in Spanish. I can't wait to report to the Jacksonville Review this week that they were speaking in tongues <laughs> at the local Presbyterian church. It'll make headline news. But what a great reminder that Jesus really is gathering people from Mexico and from Honduras and Costa Rica and Uganda and China and Russia and Ukraine. He's gathering people from every nation to bow the knee to the ultimate king. And they don't find their identity in the things of this world. They find their ultimate identity and their allegiance to the king. It's a king, it's a people, and it's a place. And where does the kingdom come? Jesus says, the power of the kingdom has come upon you. The kingdom is among you. You see, the place that that happens is right here on this earth. And in some mysterious, profound way, friends, when you come to faith in Jesus Christ and you exude the values of the kingdom, when you embody the Beatitudes, when you love your enemies and you pray for them, when someone slaps you and you turn your cheek the other way, when someone compels you to go one mile and you go two, when you fast, when you pray, when you show mercy, when you give to the poor, and you do it in a way that nobody knows, somehow, mysteriously, friends, the kingdom of God grows. Now, is it here fully? Of course not. We await the return of the king. And when he returns, he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And behold, him who sits on the throne will declare, I am making all things new. 
But the kingdom isn't just in that future day. It's here, it's now, and it's accessible by faith. Not fully, but it's already here. That's the message that Jesus has come to declare. And he is the king that makes it possible to enter that kind of life. Now, what's really sad, though, if you go back to our parable, is that no matter how many times I share what I just shared, I know by virtue of believing the words of Jesus that there are some people in this room listening to me right now that I can say that for the rest of your life on every Sunday that you are here, and it will never stir your heart. Your heart is as hard as a rock, and I can throw the seed of the gospel on it over and over and over again, and it will go nowhere. Friends, there are people who hear the message of the gospel over and over again, and they are hard soil. And Jesus says that's the first kind of soil, people who can hear this message, and what happens? Eventually, friends, even what you have will be taken away from you. Jesus says that in Matthew 13, verse 12, even the one who has, what he has will be taken from him if he doesn't respond in faith. If you don't till the hard soil of your heart to make room for the seed of the gospel to grow, eventually Satan will come and he will remove the seed. Friends, we live in a world that is imbued with spiritual power. There are spiritual forces at work that would love nothing better than to separate you from the kingdom of God. And if you hear the message of Jesus and you do this, friends, there may come a day that you can't hear it anymore and your heart is too hard and Satan comes and he snatches it. And even what you thought you had is gone from you. That's the first soil. Now, how do you preach to that? It's been my question all week. The second kind of soil, though, it's a little different. I think it speaks to maybe more people in the room. Look at verse 13, verses 20. Jesus explains this parable. This is part of why it's the most famous parable of all, because Jesus gives an extended explanation. Look at verse 20, chapter 13. It says, As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with what? With joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. You see, the second kind of soil is very different than the first. The first can't even hear the message of Jesus. The second actually loves the message of Jesus. It receives the message of Jesus with what? With joy. This, oh man, I love Jesus. I think a lot of positive things about Jesus. It receives the message with joy. And now, um, you know, I'm going to share something with you. Don't hear what I'm not saying, but hear what I am saying. And, you know, as a pastor, I do occasionally see things online that worry me. Now, they don't always worry me, but there's one thing that I do get stressed out a little bit because I think of this passage. And that is, you know, over time, I'll see people posting videos of things like their baptism, and, you know, in the videos, you know, they're like high-fiving all oh, the deacons. You know, there's like walkout music. It's like a baseball game. You know, they've got their walkout music. And they go in the water, and they come up with their arms pumped out like this. And the pastor, they're just high-fiving everybody. And it was like they just won the football game. And, okay, friends, I love watching people get baptized. I love people coming to faith in Jesus. But is there not any part of you that gets a little worried when the only emotional response to the gospel seems to be exuberance and happiness? There's a little part of me that I think, oh, I'm glad you have happiness and joy in coming to faith because that's real. But where's the conviction of sin? Where's the remorse 
that you and I have broken God's holy laws? Where's the remorse that we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves? Where's, where's the hatred of the old life and the love of the new life? Uh, think about it this way. Um, this is what I want to suggest to you. How do you know that you actually receive the gospel and you're going to persevere to the end? I think the Bible actually gives us a pretty good answer with that. If you go to the Bible, if you go to 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 1, um, I want you to show, Paul's going to talk about how people can know that they've actually been born again and they're going to persevere. And I love this because I think it speaks to this question. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, he says, For we know, brothers, loved by God. Paul's talking to people who are truly converted, who know Jesus Christ. He says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Friends, you see what Paul is saying is he's saying we can know that we have the word implanted if we have both joy and happiness, but there's also a full conviction that when we enter the waters of baptism, not only is it a sign of the Spirit's working, but there's a sense that all of our sin really is washed away, that we are planting our flag in the ground, we are leaving the old way, we are pursuing a new way of life. We do not focus on the kingdoms of this world, we focus on the kingdom of God. We become the kind of people that Jesus is speaking into reality, merciful, forgiving, just, hungering and thirsting, generous to the poor. We plant our flag in the ground. But notice, so this is how I think you can know that you actually know Jesus Christ. I'm going to give you two quick answers. Number one, there's an inner change. There's an inner reality. And secondly, there's an external reality. Your inner reality is that you, your life should be marked by joy and happiness of knowing Christ. Secondly, you should have a conviction of sin. Not to give you ungodly grief so that you hate yourself, but a recognition that when you and I repent, we wrong the Lord and the people around us. We want to repent of sin. So there's joy and conviction. And then, of course, there's the Holy Spirit. Do you see that? Paul says you have the joy of the Holy Spirit. You know what that means? That means that your spirit and the Holy Spirit are like this. Like this. The Spirit is always with you. I know we like to say Jesus is in your heart, but technically it's the Holy Spirit of Jesus in your heart. It's the Spirit that is at work in your spirit like this. And of course, the final sign that Paul says is you imitate those who have faith. Because learning is not just information, friends. Learning is imitation and immersion. So that's the interchange. The second thing is there's an external change. There's an external thing that you can point to. Uh, Jesus says in John chapter 3, verse 5, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he can't enter the kingdom of God. Many commentators over the years understand that to be a reference to baptism. Uh, think about it this way. How do I know that I'm married to my wife, Caroline? How would I know that? How could I prove it to you? Well, I could talk to you about an inner reality. I could say, I love her. She loves me. We have a lived experience over our life together. We have also fulfilled God's command to be fruitful and multiply. 
we have borne much fruit. We're not going for 60 or 30-fold, don't worry. But you could say there's an inner reality that testifies to the relationship. I know I'm married because I live my life with my wife. And anytime the kids try to get me to say yes to ice cream when mom has said no, what do I say? I say, me and your mom, were like this. No, right? So I could say there's an inner reality. That's how you know you have a spouse, right? There's an inner reality. But secondly, what's the external thing I could point to? My marriage license. I could say, I can show you my marriage license. I can show you photos of my wedding. I did this external thing that shows you that I'm married. And now I wear a sign of my covenant. I wear a wedding. Does that make me married? No, but it's a sign of an inner reality. Friends, that's how an interchange and baptism work. Baptism doesn't save you, but it is symbolic of the interchange of the Holy Spirit inside of you. So many people, I guess what I'm suggesting to you is they may have positive thoughts of Jesus, but are you truly born again? Do you know Jesus Christ? Are you, maybe say it a different way, are you willing to endure testing and tribulation? Tribulation, it's a funny word, another way of translating it is just simply trial or test. And you know what that means? A test or a trial for Jesus will mean, friend, that at some point in your career, you may miss out on a raise. You may be put on administrative leave because you are associated with the church. And what will you do then? Is Jesus really worth affecting your career? Or what if your family thinks you're, you know, crazy? Is that going to be worth it? Or what if you realize that if you really keep talking about this Jesus stuff, people are going to hate you, and you're going to experience the disdain of the world? If you really pursue the kingdom, a kingdom of righteousness and justice and mercy and forgiveness, people won't like you. What are you going to do then? Did you notice that Jesus says it could either be testing or persecution? There's persecution, but there's testing. Testing could be a bad health diagnosis. Maybe not for you, but maybe somebody you love. Then what are you going to do? Can your faith be resilient to that? The third kind of uh, soil uh, is the one that worries me the most. Look down at Matthew chapter 13. Verse 22, as for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. What was Jesus' posture when he would speak? Who remembers? He would sit down. <clears throat> What's the largest organism on our planet? What's the largest organism, living thing in our, our planet? Yeah, a lot of people think it's the blue whale. It's a good answer. It's pretty big. It's not. Not by a long shot. The blue whale is like the fingernail clipping of what I'm talking about. Probably not even that. Anybody know what the largest living organism is? It's not a tree. It's not a trick question. It's actually here. It's actually in Oregon. It's actually in southern Oregon, in the Mount Hur National Forest. You know what it is? It's the humongous fungus. There is one living organism that biologists have been studying since 1992 when they discovered it, and they nickname it the humongous fungus. It covers 3.7 miles, square miles, you know, that direction in Oregon. 
It is the size, if you can use your brain, it uh, is the size of 1,600 football fields. You know what it does? It's all one living organism. It's not a colony. It's one thing. Biologists love this thing. There it is. This is what it looks like most of the time, and it's a white film. It's only about this thick, and it covers, you know, um, millions of trees in the Mount Hood National Forest, and uh, what's fascinating about it is, you know, I don't know, a couple times a year, it'll bloom when it has actually like mushrooms, but the way that the uh, fungus grows, the mushroom grows, is um, mycelium. That's the white stuff. You know what it does? It gets into the ground, and nothing stops it. There's no way to stop this. We have no thing that can stop this from growing. It's like an apocalyptic nightmare of fungus. It goes into the roots of a tree. It works its way up. And then it gets in between the bark and the trunk. And it's just this thin layer. And then it blooms. And when it blooms, those little, like, small little mushrooms about this big, it pushes all the bark off the tree. And it may take 30 years, but the mycelium will kill the tree. And then it'll feast on the piece of wood that the tree is. Nothing stops it. It kills every tree and every plant in its path. He who has ears, let him hear. The love of money is such a small thing. It's just one more thing. It's just one thing. But what if money or the love of money, the cares of this world, the dream life, what if it was like a little thin layer of fungus that just got right up underneath your skin and coated your heart? And when it gave birth, it pushed right through your rib cage and ate you from the inside out. You know, maybe you don't think you love money, but just think about the things that money gives you, the cares of this world, the dream life that you live. Now, listen to how the Bible warns us about this little thing, the love of things in this life, your thing that you are committed to, your dream life that nobody should press in on. Jesus says this, he told them, watch out and be on guard against all greed because one's life is not in the abundance of his possessions. Paul writes this, but godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of fungus, I mean evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, ready to share. Thus storing up treasure for themselves is a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. As for what was sown among thorns, 
That's the person who hears the word, the message of the gospel of the kingdom. But the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, choke the word from the inside out, and it proves unfruitful. Friends, the last kind of soil is hopefully the majority of you, and I pray that it is, because the good soil does what? Look at verse 23. As for it was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. That's Matthew's way of saying they receive the gospel and they get it and they love it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case, a hundredfold, in another 60, and in another 30. You know, what Jesus is saying is that there is a way of coming to faith and receiving the implanted word so that you become what you were always meant to be. Somebody who produces a hundredfold beyond what you could possibly do, that your life would bear fruit and have meaning. And you know what a life of meaning actually is? You brought nothing into this world, you cannot bring anything out. Let me simplify your life if you have ears to hear. The only thing that really matters in your life and in my life are two things. Number one, your relationship with God, because it's the only relationship that will go on for eternity. Number two, the lives of people that you invest in. Everything else is going to end up in a trash dump one day. Everything else your grandkids won't even want to touch. Some of you, that preached the word to you already. All that you have in this life is relationship with God and the people you invest in. Jesus said it this way. What's the most important commandment? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the ethic of the kingdom of God, so that you can take hold of that which is truly life. How do you stop an unstoppable fungus? How do they stop that? Isn't that horrifying that there's a fungus growing somewhere in our state that's unstoppable? You know, biologists have only found one thing that, that can stop it. You know what they do? Anybody know? Not a leech. All they know to do is plant different seeds of trees that are impervious to it. Friends, that's what it means to have the kingdom of God growing inside of you. It means that you desire the kingdom of God. You desire to be generous to the poor. You desire to be just. You desire to show mercy. You desire to be a peacemaker. You desire to invite people into the kingdom of God, and something grows in you entirely different. And it's the seed of the kingdom of God. So let me just finish up. How many people do you see today, if you were to categorize everybody? In Jesus' life, how many people did he see? Jesus told this parable. Isn't it funny that his life fulfilled this parable? The first group of people, you know, they're hard-hearted. Who's that? The Pharisees, the religious leaders who didn't want anything to do with the kingdom of God because it threatened the kingdom of me. They had hard hearts. They didn't want it. The second group are people who hear it, receive it with joy, but they don't want to go through persecution or the rejection of the world, right? They don't want to be seen as one of those wackos from Galilee. And who fulfills that? Literally like every disciple. By the end of Jesus' life, he's, he's abandoned by his disciples. And even St. Peter's like, I don't even know that guy. And he calls down curses from God saying, I don't know him. I swear to God, I don't know him. Even Peter apostatizes in that moment. And then I know who gets choked out by this little, thin, excusable, understandable love of money. I mean, Jesus wasted a lot of money, wouldn't you say? He's letting ladies smash their jars of perfume. They could have given that to the poor. 
And yet we know that the mycelium of greed got under somebody's skin. Who was it? Judas. He was the keeper of the money. And somehow it worked its way under his skin, under his ribcage, and it covered his heart, and then it bloomed. And he betrayed the Lord himself for how much money? 30 pieces of silver. Who are the fourth group? Who's the good soil? Friends, I pray that it's you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the parable of the sower. And Lord, I praise you that this story reads us. Lord, I pray that your spirit would till the hard soil of our hearts, that we would receive the implanted word with meekness, which has power to save. Lord, I pray that you would protect each one of us from the deceitfulness of riches. And Lord, more than the kingdom of me, we would desire the kingdom of God. Lord, that we would be people who exude its ethics and its hope for this world. Lord, we thank you for your work. Lord, I thank you for the conviction and the joy and the happiness of the Holy Spirit. Even now, Lord, would you be lifting us up to behold your face. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.